38 years of triumph and tragedy, all in one book called Numbers. Stay tuned. Today, we're going to consider the Torah of Numbers. spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting, on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male, individually. Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. The lifting up of the heads of the congregation of Israel. When we consider that, he is counting. He is counting, as the rabbis say, those whom he loves. And as Messiah will later tell us, even the hairs of our head are numbered, which speaks to just how close he is to us and how much he deeply cares for us. The book of Numbers, which takes its English name from the census that opens the book, is fascinating. As I said, it covers 38 years of Israel's history in the wilderness. And it doesn't leave out the bad things. It doesn't leave out the failures. It records faithfully the moments, as I said, of triumph and those of tragedy. The moments that would lead to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness before they enter into the promised land. Rabbi Dr. Joseph Hertz explains this. Numbers is no mere chronicle of the outstanding events during the journey in the wilderness. It interprets these events and shows forth the faithful watchfulness of God in every distress and danger, as well as the stern severity of the divine judgment against rebellion and apostasy. In addition to the story of this discipline, it records the laws and ordinances given during that journey, laws relating to the sanctuary, the camp, and the purification of life, and such civil and political ordinances as would enable the Israelites to fulfill the task God assigned to them among the nations. The Torah takes great pains to record the arranging and ordering of the camp of Israel, the order of departure, the tribal placement within the camp, each by their banner. And what we note is this, they are being ordered externally, but there is also a need for an inward change of heart. And we see gradually, and not without great pain, the entire Exodus generation, save two, who would not enter into the promised land, but would die in the wilderness. But their children would enter into the promise. That's a deeply painful realization, but it speaks, as Rabbi Hertz said, to the severity of the divine judgment in the face of apostasy, in the face of rebellion. We find in the name of the book of Numbers in Hebrew, Bamidbar, an indication of the work that the Lord is doing in Israel. He provides a clue as to the process that he is taking his people through and that he will be faithful to fulfill. In Hebrew, the book is called Bamidbar, as I've said, which literally means in the wilderness. And for many of us, the wilderness can be a scary place, a dangerous place, uh, 
we might get hurt and find ourselves stranded. Hey, maybe someone is uh, up to no good and they're out there and they find us. And oh my goodness, what if a bear finds us in the middle of nowhere? Yet in this book, we see that the Lord is numbering his people, establishing the order of his camp, assigning Levites to their respective duties. The priests are anointed. You have the beautiful redemption of the firstborn of man and beast. And the wilderness then, Bamidbar, becomes a place of order. And in fact, that's the Hebraic understanding of wilderness, Bamidbar. Bamidbar comes from a a root, Davar, which means to speak. But literally, it means to order or arrange. And that's really what speech is. It's in order to words which express intelligible ideas. Bamidbar then, according to Hebraic understanding, is a place existing in an arranged order. It's not an order that we can always discern or see. But if you spend enough time in the wilderness, you begin to recognize the order that is there, the morning song, the evening song, the movement towards water at different points of the day. All of these beautiful ways in which nature is ordered according to divine will. The Torah doesn't gloss over the difficulties that Israel faced in the wilderness. And it's difficult to change thinking. It's difficult to change behaviors. And it's difficult to endure those changes as they take place in others. So the Torah records this in order to show how people are being reformed, not just as individuals, but as a community, as a congregation, as a nation. Dr. R.T. Kendall reminds us regarding the purity of heart. He says this, you cannot always help what you feel, but you can control what you say or do. So two episodes take place in the book of Numbers that have this devastating effect on the children of Israel. That's The first is the testimony of the spies and then Korah's rebellion or Korah's rebellion. If you recall in Numbers 13, Moses sends 12 spies into the land to verify what the Lord has promised. And 10 of these spies bring back a positive report about what the Lord has done, but wrapped in a negative report that that uh, really speaks to the strength of the enemy, to the strength of the obstacle, to the adversity that is before them. And that strikes fear into the heart. They begin with, hey, yeah, this is as the Lord has said, but um, we've got some problems and we can't overcome them. Joshua and Caleb do their best to rally Israel in faith. As they say, only do not rebel against the Lord, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But in the end, as we know, Israel fell into despair and mourning and desired to return to Egypt. And they received in that, because of disobedience, a year for a day. Yet, from that episode, from that moment in time, from that failure in faith, we find a beautiful reminder of presence and promise of the Lord. I'm going to read briefly from Numbers chapter 15. And I'll begin in verse 37 to the conclusion of the chapter. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. Say to them that they are to make for themselves tzitzit, fringe, on the corners of their garments throughout their generations. And they are to put a blue cord on each tzitzit, on each fringe. It will be to, to you your own fringe. So whenever you look at them, you'll be, you will remember all the commands of God and do them and not go spying. That's an important word in this, and I would underline that. Spying out after your own heart and your own eyes, prostituting yourselves. That would be the waywardness. This way, you will remember and obey all the commands, and you will be holy to your God. That's faithfulness. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. There's so much to unpack in that. It's an amazing portion of scripture. Following the sin of the ten spies, the Lord gives the instruction that tzitzit or tassels or fringes are to be affixed to the garments of the children of Israel. While there's no specific limitation given in the Torah to, for women to uh, wear these or not wear these, um, it's tradition within uh, the Orthodox world that women not wear tzitzit or fringes, and then you, you find it in the conservative reform and even renewal movements and reconstructionist movements where women do. But I don't see any prohibition to that in Scripture, so... Um, it's a beautiful reminder to have. So these types of fringes actually weren't all that unusual among Semitic people, as they were often used to identify tribe and position within the tribe. So the more ornate, the higher position you had. And different tribes could recognize more readily uh, who belonged where. But when we look at the command that's given, the tzitzit, also had to include a thread of blue, tekelet, which was a very costly dye. Dr. John Gar explains this. The dye for the color tekelet was literally worth its own weight in gold and more in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, wool dyed with tekelet was worth up to 20 times its weight in gold. One modern investigator demonstrated the high cost of tekelet and purple dyes by finding it necessary to use over 8,500 such mollusks to obtain one gram of dye. What was the purpose of tzitzit? Well, it was to remind those looking upon them of the 613 commands of the Lord, of his name, of his promise, of deliverance from bondage, and a reminder not to follow after your own heart, but rather to be holy for the Lord. And I've always found a connection between the tzitzit and the spies because they were carrying the fruit when they returned to the camp of Israel. They had the fruit of the land. They had a visual reminder that the promises of God were true. But yet they still went after their own testimony, after their own negative appreciation of the Lord's promise to them. But when you find the word spying being used, you see that the Lord is connecting this promise that we are to fix it to our bodies, to be part of our clothing, is to be part of our identity. And by that, the promises of God are to be as well. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. 
Why should the tzitzit be affixed to clothing? Well, Rabbi Arya Kaplan explains this. Of all living creatures, man is unique in the fact that he covers his body with clothing. Homo sapiens is the only species that wear clothing. The reason for this has been the subject for philosophers, sociologists, anthropologists, psychologists, psychologists, and ethnologists for many years. And they have come up with, with some interesting theories. Even more fascinating is the fact that their conclusions often agree with those taught by our great religious sages. The most obvious reason for wearing clothing might appear to provide protection from the elements. However, when anthropologists studied primitive tribes and even the warmest climates, they found that still people wore clothing as a matter of course. The human practice of wearing clothing seems to be universal, even where there is no need for protection from the elements. Regarding the origin and purpose of clothing and tzitzit themselves, Rabbi Ali Monk writes this, It was when Adam sought to define for himself the distinction between good and evil, he wanted to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, that he lost his natural innocence and came to no shame. Clothes then became the way for him to regain his lost dignity before others, while continuing to be a permanent reminder of that first sin. The tzitzit attached to our garments specifically teach us this lesson and remind us not to seek to know what is good and what is bad through our own eyes without Hashem's guidance. Additionally, when we look upon tzitzit, we're reminded of something very powerful. The word tzitzit is often translated as fringe, and unfortunately in the New Testament it's translated as corner, the corner of the garment, but it's really the strings, the fringe, the tassels that are there that are tied in specific ways according to individual minhag or tradition. The root for tzitzit is tzitz, which means blossom. So tzitzit can be understood as blossoms, the potential fruit that come, comes to bear through covenant relationship and obedience to the living God. Tzitzit are a reminder of his commands, and his commands are the blossoms or potential fruit waiting to mature and come forth. While we haven't carried fruit from our expedition to the Holy Land back to the camp and then given a false testimony regarding it, as we look upon the strings, as we look upon the tzitzit that are on our garment and we behold them, and we're reminded of his commandment, we're reminded of his name, we're reminded of the covenant relationship that we have with him. And as we go out and walk in faith and we bring that potential, that fruit, the blossom that's there, the potential fruit that's there, we bring it to fruition and come forth as he begins to work in and through us and in our environment. So we learn from this that regardless of the difficulty that is before us, that he will, as Paul writes, work all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, called according to his purpose. Rabbi Hurd summarizes this, the heart and the eyes are the agents of sin. The eye seeth, the heart desireth, and the person executeth. It's a quote from the Talmud. The, the true Israelite, however, arrayed in sacred covering, 
reminding him of the divine presence, does not stray after the satisfaction of bodily pleasures, but is mindful that he is a member of a holy people dedicated unto God and holiness. When we look at the broad scope of the book of Numbers, we, we have to be reminded of all that is contained in the, in the pages, the chapters, the verses, the red heifer, the serpent, the city of refuge, which points us to Messiah. But it seems a little bit more pressing to illustrate the importance of what our eyes, we set our eyes on and for what purpose we do so in this day and age. And if you followed this series or even uh, my teaching ministry over the years, um, I like to look at the prophetic pictures related to Messiah, Yeshua, Jesus. I like to see the type and the shadow that is revealed. I don't negate the life of the people who lived the history that we read of, but I also love to see how God through Moses wrote of Messiah. In number 17, in the beginning of the chapter, we read of a rebellion led by Korah, who was a man of position, a man of renown. He was a leader in Israel, and he brings 250 other leaders in Israel before Moses and before Aaron, and he complains about their leadership. In the most unusual fashion, the Lord demonstrates that Moses and Aaron are his called leaders. But the next day, after this fantastic moment, this very tragic moment, some of the children of Israel come before Moses and Aaron yet again to complain, this time about them having killed the people of the Lord. And of course, it wasn't Moses or Aaron that did so. It was judgment that came upon Korach and his followers. In order to rid himself of complaints about the leadership of Moses and Aaron, the Lord commands Moses to have each of the 12 tribes bring a rod, a staff. It was a sign of authority. It was a sign of leadership and to place it before him. They placed it before him in, in the holy place, before his presence. And as we read, the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. There's another play on tzitz, of blossom and tzitzit. Overnight, Aaron's rod sprouted and brought forth buds, had produced blossoms, and yielded ripe almonds. It's a rather unusual way to announce the identity of your chosen high priest. But what prophetic picture do we find in this? And why is it almonds? The rod of Aaron, I can assure you, was dead wood. He wasn't pulling a, a root ball around the wilderness, around the desert with him. He had probably carried the same staff for many, many years. There is certainly no life in it whatsoever. It's dead wood. Yet the Lord chooses to bring forth life from that which is dead in order to show a sign of choice. Almond in Hebrew comes from the root shakad, which means to be alert, to be sleepless, um, to hasten, to watch, or to be watchful. So the almond tree is often called the awakening one in Israel because it's the first tree in Israel to give leaves, usually during the winter months of January. What did the Lord use to identify the Levitical high priest? 
the almond branch of resurrection? What did he use to identify his heavenly high priest, who is the branch, the resurrection? We see in this that the Lord's choice for priestly authority and leadership, his Messiah, his Mashiach, his anointed one, was was demonstrated by divine choice through resurrection. And as we consider the book of Numbers, and I pray as you begin to study it and, and allow this beautiful record to speak to you, speak to your heart, speak to your life, speak to where you are and the circumstances that you find yourself in within family and community, we need to remember how the Lord is changing and ordering us, setting us in order, Bamidbar, Davar, setting us in an ordered fashion. He's reforming us, renewing us, and acknowledging that it is a process. It's not an instantaneous reality for us in the flesh. It's part of what is often called progressive sanctification. As we are yielding to Him in our life, He begins to change us. We are positionally sanctified, positionally set before Him. But progressively, He will work on us. He will sanctify us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. So when we look at Genesis, we're reminded that it's a book of beginnings, Exodus, a book of freedom, Leviticus, a book of holiness, Numbers, then we might say, is a book of ordering and alignment. So let us be mindful of this process. Let us acknowledge that step by step, day by day, promise by promise, as he is working in us, he will set us in a way that glorifies him, set us in a way that allows us to know that we are camped around the banner of our Messiah. We are camped in the midst of the presence of God. He is in our midst. He dwells among us and so on. And we're mindful of that process so that we stop self-condemning and we allow him to work and to show us how, over the course of time, he is molding us and working our life together. All of the good, the bad, the ugly, everything in between, the triumph and the tragedy, he is bringing it together for our good because he has called us, because he loves us, and because he's loved us, we love him, and he conforms us to his, to the image of his son. Romans 8, 28 and 29. So let us be mindful of that process and faithfully follow as he leads. Friends, I hope and pray that this little talk on the Torah of Numbers helps you to see the beauty of the book and how it speaks to our life today in faith. So I pray today, no matter where you are in the world, and thank you always, as always, for listening. I pray that the Lord bless you and keep you always. May the Lord bless you and keep you. In the name of Yeshua, I pray. Friends, tune in for our next episode, because we still, as I say, have a lot of Torah to learn. Amen. Amen. Amen.